I'm Marty Moscow, and welcome to The Connection. Our guest, Paula Morantz-Cohen, says that we all need conversation, but some of us, including her, need it more than others. She grew up in what she described as a loud, opinionated, and talkative family, and she thrived in it. She even wrote in the Wall Street Journal that conversation is her therapy. Her new book, Talking Cure, borrows its title from Freud and psychoanalysis, and the idea that talking about deep-seated feelings without censoring oneself is healing. Paula Cohen says that meaningful conversation outside of the therapist's office is vital to our well-being as humans and vital for our country. It builds bridges between us. It gives us insight into ourselves and others. It surprises us with a sense of discovery, and it brings us joy. She worries, though, that honest conversation is being undermined by our angry politics, the distractions of social media, the pressures of conformity, and the threat of censorship. Paula Morantz-Cohen is dean of the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, where she is professor of English. She's written several other books, including Of Human Kindness, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy, and the subtitle to her new book is An Essay on the Civilizing Power of Conversation. And Paula Morantz-Cohen, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you, Marty. I'm glad to be here. Nice to have you with us. So why is conversation not just important to you, but really vital and life-affirming? I guess um, I am an extrovert. That's the way it's defined. I thrive on being with other people. But I enjoy hearing them speak uh, authentically and not uh, in a guarded way. And real conversation or what Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century conversationalist called solid conversation, involves uh, really substantial interaction and engagement between people. And I love that. Well, you described very briefly your family, your mother and your father and how they approach conversation rather differently. And I'm thinking about those families of origin is where we learn so much about ourselves and about life, but where we learn about talking and listening, if if anyone listens anymore. That is so true. And I think I was lucky in that my, and it could be for some people, it might not work out that way, but my parents were very different people in their styles of conversation. My mother was far more emotional, um, which I guess fits with the stereotypical female style of conversation. Deborah Tannen writes about that. Um, She was very emotional, very intuitive, very full of storytelling and anecdotes. And she observed people and she connected with people in such a wonderful way. I love that. And I see myself as I grow older doing it more and more. My father was a scientist. I should say my mother was a French teacher and my father was a scientist. And he was very interested in ideas. He was very uh, I suppose rational, although rational people are not always that rational. No, and they I've, think they are. <laughs> I've come, yes. Yeah, they think they are. <laughs> and as we've, I've grown older, I've seen the gaps in his reasoning. But I was very taken with his ability to develop an idea. And, and that influenced me as well. It reminds me, as a kid growing up, my, uh, my father was a teacher. He would goad us children with saying, you know, my generation has solved all the problems of the world. We've left you nothing. And then, of course, we'd say, Dad, but, you know. <laughs> You've uh, also messed up the world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We yeah. have to do a lot of cleanup. Mm-hmm. But the idea of just sort of tossing out an insanely provocative idea and, and the joy of, of arguing in a friendly kind of way. Yes, I loved that with my father. I always felt I could get my father 
to, if not agree, see my point of view, which is very wonderful for a child to have that power with a very powerful adult. And my father was very, very, uh, he was was a strong personality. And I've always felt if I tried hard enough, he (laughs) would come around. I mean, he certainly didn't want me to be an English professor. He wanted me to be a scientist. But I convinced him it was worth doing. And that was quite a feat. (laughs) You also, and I do want to move on, but you also say, it's just a sentence about, about your sister. Um, And the kind of, the word you use is undertow, the kind of undertow relationship we have with our siblings. And I really resonated with that. Yes, because there's the history, and often a fraught history in some ways. I I think the family, you know, the nuclear family can be a very difficult thing to navigate, even the best families. I think I had a good one, and my sister and I have a very good relationship. There are still areas where we're careful with each other, and um, I feel that though having a sibling is a good thing because you learn how to share and share physically, but also share mentally and and conversationally with the other person, giving them space. You know, it seems funny to talk about or even define what a conversation is because we do it all the time. It's kind of like defining what is eating. But you have a really good definition, and I want to read it because I think it would be helpful to our listeners. You say, good conversation mixes opinions, feelings, facts, and ideas in an improvisational exchange with one or more individuals in an atmosphere of goodwill. It inspires mutual insight, respect, and most of all, joy. It's a way of relaxing the mind, opening the heart, and connecting authentically with others. To converse well is surprising, humanizing, and fun. That description is just the most joyous <laughs> uh, description of what con- what real in-depth connecting conversation is all about. I agree. And I have to say that we don't always touch on all those points in our conversations. I mean, I'm not trying to put the bar too high there. I will say at its very best, it does all those things. But even if it does one or two, I think it's worth doing and can create joy. Do you think conversation, though, is under threat? Um, I think that for young people now, and I'm a teacher as well as a writer, um, I, I do think that they they have less practice in conversation. Now, so much has to do with the family of origin, as I said, but whether or not you come from a family that talks, I mean, my husband came from a family that didn't talk much. I had to teach him how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> among but, other things. Yeah, right. among other things, which right. he would agree with. But, um, but I think that students um, nowadays, young people, uh, when they go to college or even in high school, they it used to be that there was perhaps more talk. And that was because they had to talk with each other. That was the social norm. But now with social media, and I think because of COVID, which has you know exacerbated so many things, we see students who are s- simply unable to engage that way as mm. well as they used to. I want to pick up on all that, but I want to just underscore, um, and again, we're talking about, at this point, good conversation or meaningful conversation. You're right that there's, there's an element of risk because we are revealing something about ourselves if it's honest and authentic. I I absolutely feel there is, Um, but there should also be a degree of safety. So um, those two things together, I mean, risk, I don't want to exaggerate risk, but there should be a degree of exposure, self-exposure, and of edginess even in the sense that if everybody agrees, it's not a really good conversation. I mean, 
even I make the point that even if we seem to agree, we won't agree entirely because we're two different people. And we need to try and tease out those differences for the conversation to be meaningful and interesting. Otherwise, it's boring. Because it's like talking to oneself. Like talking to oneself, and maybe even not that, because with oneself, one has all the nuances of oneself. Whereas with another person who's mouthing the same ideas, these are platitudes usually. And that is very, it's it's just not fun. Not fun. Yeah. And it should be fun. (laughs) It should be fun. And I guess the little bit of risk that you mentioned is part of the fun. You're sort of pushing the envelope a little bit. You sometimes, you know, baiting someone a tiny bit with goodwill, trying to figure out where they're coming from. Um, When you're too guarded, I don't think you can engage well. And when the other person is playing things too close to the vest, it's hard to, to connect with them. And that's something that I miss more often now than in the past. Your title, the title of your book is Talking Cure. And as I mentioned, it comes from psychoanalysis and mm-hmm. Freud and others, the idea that um, you can go into therapy and talk about these sort of deep, dark feelings that you might not share with another person. Why did you pick that as a title? Why is that meaningful to you? Well, I'm very interested in Freud and have always been and have read him and written about him for, all, for my entire career. Um, I think that he was, uh, I wish I could have known him and had him at a dinner party. I think he was probably a wonderful conversationalist, wonderful writer, and his writing has a conversational tone. But mostly, the talking cure is in some ways, and not uh, in many ways not, a model for conversation. uh, I mean, it's not a model because, of course, it's one way you are exposing to the therapist and he or she is not giving back anything. In fact, that's the point. Sure. But I I do make the point, and I think this is a good one, that when you engage in in psychoanalysis, there's the idea of transference. You fall in love with your therapist and counter-transference when they can fall in love with you. And that feeling of love um, or tremendous affection is something that I think happens in good conversation. And I've had it with individuals and I've had it with classes, with groups. I mean, love, intimacy, safety. Yes. I mean, that's part of therapy, but it also sounds like that's a key, those are key ingredients for good conversation. I absolutely think so. I think, you know, you know when you're having it, when you're inside of it, you feel good. And um, it, it's life-affirming. And uh, it's healing. And so in those ways, it, it's, it's akin to talk therapy. Of course, in other ways, it's not. In other ways, it's not. There's also that kind of when you're deeply connected with someone, talk in conversation, time seems to go away, you know, and it's just you and that person or maybe another person in in conversation. Yes, it's a wonderful feeling. And you do get out of yourself, even though you're expressing yourself, you get you leave yourself behind and, and, you know, being always inside your own head and and having conversations with yourself can be uh, it can begin to bring you down. And uh, I guess, again, that gets me back to the social aspect of conversation that is so necessary, I think, in a society where we need to connect. Well, and you make an interesting observation uh, about AA, not that you've, you know, if you're not a member of AA, then you Mm -hmm. don't know what happens. But nonetheless, 
it is a place where people do share and have conversations and hopefully feel safe enough to be able to do that. Yeah, I have a, a good friend who um, was t- spoke to me a great deal about AA and how he feels, uh, unlike other forms of therapy where it is one way, with the people that are in AA, they can have conversations that are truly wonderful. Um, and uh, that don't necessarily deal with alcohol at all. And that's part of the process, that communal sense. Um, And that's why I included it as one of the kinds of conversations that I put in one chapter of the book where I go through different settings and um, situations that have given rise over history to conversational Mm -hmm. groups. So, uh, yeah, he, he, he filled me in on that. I per- personally have never been to AA except what I've seen in movies and read sure. about. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take yeah. a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. Uh, Paula Morantz Cohen is our guest today on The Connection. She's got a new book. It's titled Talking Cure and it's subtitled An Essay on the Civilizing Power of Conversation. And yes, we are talking about the importance of conversation, uh, something that we do every day, but probably don't think about in a great deal of detail. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Paula Morantz-Cohen says we all need conversation. It's good for our health, our mental health. It's good for the country. She joins us today on The Connection to talk uh, about how meaningful conversation gives us joy. It gives us insight into ourselves and others. It can surprise us. It binds us together. And again, her book is called Talking Cure. Before I play a clip from my dinner with Andre, I just wanted to go back to something that you wrote in the book that I underlined about thinking about conversation in terms of improvisation or play or even sports. Uh, You write, if writing and speechifying can be equated with sculpture, where one models something through words in solitary space, conversation is more like certain kinds of sports, where the game proceeds with certain parameters, but is unpredictable and reliant on one's ability to coordinate with another person or persons. And again, I I feel like that captures conversation Mm. in a beautiful way. Um, yes, and then I go on to say, but it's not like sport because there's no winning and losing. Exactly. I mean, a good conversation doesn't have a winner or loser, and that's something that I make a point of because it's not a debate or an argument, um, although some people think of conversation in those <laughs> terms. It's really about engagement for its own sake. And so it's more like jazz um, mm-hmm. and that kind of improvisation where there isn't necessarily competition. I mean, sometimes there can be among the people playing instruments, but sometimes I think at the best, from what I hear of jazz musicians, um, they are really riffing mm-hmm. off of each other and enjoying each other's uh, interpretation. Well, and they are listening. <laughs> and listening, yes. And that is important for, of course, any kind of conversation, for, mm-hmm. the, for someone to listen. Yeah, listening is as important as speaking. I mean, when I when you have a good conversation, and I think of this in a seminar in particular, you're building something together. And in order to build, you have to listen to and and not just wait to right. say what you want to say, <laughs> right. but impatiently and and, right. and and 
build on what the other person said. Well, I, I mentioned my dinner with Andre. This is the, um, the 1981 film starring Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory. They actually play fictionalized versions of themselves, directed by Louis Mal. Now, these are two friends uh, with very different ideas about most everything, and they meet for a dinner at a New York City restaurant, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk. Here's a clip from one scene where they are discussing the pros and the cons of the electric blanket. Wally loves his electric blanket. Andre disagrees. It begins with Andre. What does it do to us, Wally, living in an environment where something as massive as the seasons or winter or cold don't in any way affect us? I mean, we're animals after all. I mean, what does that mean? I think that means that instead of living under the sun and the moon and the sky and the stars, we're living in a fantasy world of our own making. Yeah, but I mean... I would never give up my electric blanket, Andre. I mean, because uh, New York is cold in the winter. I mean, our apartment is cold. It's a difficult environment. I mean, uh, our lives are tough enough as it is. I'm not looking for ways to get rid of the few things that provide relief and comfort. I mean, on the contrary, I'm looking for more comfort because uh, the world is very abrasive. I mean, uh, I'm trying to protect myself because really there are these abrasive beatings to be avoided everywhere you look. Yeah, but Wally, don't, don't you see that comfort can be dangerous? I mean, you like to be comfortable, and I like to be comfortable, too, but comfort can lull you into a dangerous tranquility. That's such a wonderful taste of that movie. And as you say, and I felt the same way, the first time I saw it, I felt like, oh, my God, yeah. you know, two people talking. But the more you watch it, the deeper, the more meaningful, the more fun it is as you listen to these two people talk about everything, including electric blankets. It's so true. It is. I did not particularly like this film when I first saw it. But when I went back, and actually I went back and watched it because I was thinking about a movie that was mostly all conversation when I was writing this book, and I wanted to refresh my memory. And I really saw it differently. And this exchange is so fantastic because it's, it contains the, the irony that, of course, um, Andre Gregory is a, is a rich man, and right. he can afford to decide that he doesn't want comfort, whereas Wally is, uh, you know, has to scrape by. And for him, the electric blanket is quite important. Um, and I actually, you know, I talk about the structure of, the, of this film because I think this occurs before the real turn that happens in it, which is where they're both, first, Wally is really kind of uh, taken aback by the fact that he's in a very fancy restaurant where he's met Andre, and he feels out of place, and he doesn't talk much, and he says yes, and he just, you know, sort of makes some sounds to everything that Andre is saying. And then at some point, when he begins to really relax, he engages with Andre, and he disagrees with him. And then Andre is able to incorporate some of what Wally says, and they actually have a true conversation. And at the end, Wally feels feels better about himself because you see him at the very beginning where he's he's feeling very like very uh, upset about this dinner and um, something of a drudge in the whole situation but he's uplifted by speaking to his friend and even as different as they are i think the setting um, the relaxation, the food and drink have helped bring him to mm. a new place. In fact, you say food and drink are or can be just so important to conversation. 
I believe so. Now, uh, I have a chapter on food and drink and yes, conversation. <laughs> and I have had people say to me, oh, but you know, you can have a great conversation over a hamburger. And that's absolutely true. And that is good. Can, be a, a good hamburger or a bad hamburger. But I, I do believe that when you're in a setting that's very warm and conducive to talk with food and drink that's of a, qu- a certain quality, um, it can relax you to a point where you're willing to, um, to entertain mm-hmm. ideas that you might normally not. And so that's what I really mean by that, which doesn't mean that it has to be a luxurious restaurant, although I do like good food. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that setting is very important for talk. And I think one of the reasons you see so many young people frequenting um, coffee shops now and looking for just the right coffee shop is that they understand that that setting is important for them to feel good about themselves and to engage with each other. You make a reference, I think someone else makes a reference to my dinner with Andre as the first podcast. And I thought that was interesting (laughs) to think of it as a a podcast because in many ways, that's how many podcasts operate. Yes. People in conversation. Yes. And I think that is a wonderful uh, opportunity for people to talk together. The podcast is perhaps the way we're reviving conversation in the public sphere and modeling it for people who are listening. Well, let's talk about the public sphere. And, and mm-hmm. you're rather critical of the sort of the, the media world, for lack of a better word, uh, for how people talk to each other, how people discuss ideas, how they disagree or even agree. There's a lot more, I think, agreement. People have kind of gone to their separate corners and, and talked to each other. Right. But how do you see our well, media world? Well, I, I was taken to task in the Wall Street Journal for saying, when they reviewed this book, for saying that I think it might have started with Ronald Reagan, the <laughs> great did. communicator, Yeah. Um, in the sense that he was a very controlled speaker. And he had, there was an article uh, when he was president about his public relations strategy, and he had a message of the week and a line of the day. And that, I think, has been followed ever since by politicians, that kind of control. And it really does inhibit the kind of spontaneous conversation that politicians, now they were never that spontaneous. But nonetheless, there was a sense in which you never knew quite what might turn up. But I think Reagan's control followed through to others. And we see it not just in our politicians, but perhaps in all aspects of life where there's any possibility of public display. Because it's scripted. It isn't the kind of improvisational conversation that we were referring to earlier. Right. And that there is no surprise. When there's no surprise, there is, I mean, it can be safe, but it's boring. And it's it's not opening up any areas for further discourse. You know, I was thinking of that old show, Crossfire, where people from two sides of the political aisle would get together and argue. And then Jon Stewart went on that show and he said to the hosts, you are ruining America. <laughs> because, hear- you know, having in terms of sort of fake arguments, but but nonetheless... Um, they weren't particularly productive. But now it feels as if, as I mentioned earlier, that everyone's kind of gone to their separate corners, and now there isn't that sort of interchange of ideas. Even Crossfire, at least they were talking. Maybe they weren't actually engaging, but they were talking to each other in some sense. Now, as you say, there is much more talking within your tribe 
whether it's a political tribe or, or whatever group that you're with. And um, I, I think that is really a shame. And it's, it's really not good for our students to see this because they then are afraid to voice yeah. opinions contrary to what they think is expected of them. We're also awash with misinformation and disinformation and lies. I mean, I just think it makes it harder to have a conversation when, you know, we've got, you know, these these fake facts that that, that intrude themselves on, on conversation. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, the idea that there used to be a sort of central place where we knew where the facts lay. Now, they may have been wrong. Right. But that did allow us to check each other. And now everyone seems to have his or her own facts. Um, And that can be, I mean, obviously, there are facts and not facts still. But um, it's, it's become very difficult. Uh, We're in a post-truth world Mm. in some ways. And within the academy where I was trained, um, you know, the whole uh, movement of deconstruction, a deconstructionist uh, theory was the idea that there is no settled truth. That has seems to have permeated out into the world at large. And certainly one of our former presidents is very much behind that idea. And that's become corrosive. I mean, just making things up. Making things up and saying, well, my truth is as good as your truth. Right. Right. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. Uh, Paula Morantz-Cohen is our guest today on The Connection, and she's got a new book we've been talking about called Talking Cure, subtitled An Essay on the Civilizing Power of Conversation, and she's a professor at Drexel University. I played that clip from um, my dinner with Andre, but you also write about a colleague, a former colleague that you had at uh, Drexel University, a guy named Dave Jones. You disagreed about just about everything, but you managed to have this really warm relationship. Explain how that worked. It's very strange in some ways, and yet I oh, he is a touchstone. He died three years ago. Um, we were colleagues for 30 years at Drexel. Um, he and I were so different. He was from Kansas. He was a Marine. Um, he was very much in a sort of, he was a conservative uh, politically. Um, so I was very different. But we bonded, I think, over books. He mm. read voraciously. And he had, he listened. And I, lis- I listened. And we were able to both find common ground and talk about our differences and fight, I will say, and right. sometimes in a way that was not as productive where one of us would you just leave angry? the table. One of us would leave. I, I can't take any more of this and would leave. But we always made up and found another way to in. And I don't, you know, it's hard for me to put my finger on what it is that made us so, um, gave us this rapport that we had. And I think it's just that we always seem to find more to talk about and not to take too personally, although, as I said, we sometimes did, the things we said, and to feel that we were intrigued by the other's mind. And the very differences that we had were part of that interest. So I was curious why he thought the way he did, and he was interested mm. in why, and where he came from, and the same with him. And I think that curiosity, that desire to figure out why that other person is that person, is part of what drive what fuels great conversation. Well, and it kind of reminds me about um, 
these the salon, you know, the idea of, of people getting together and talking. And I'm sure some of the famous salons, most people disagree about things. I kind of went there yeah. perhaps to argue. You even talk about the Harlem Renaissance, the Civic Dinner Club, where there were really engaged conversations, the Algonquin Roundtable, where people came to to talk and converse and, and probably debate and argue. Yeah, I have a chapter in the book dealing with these various groups that gave rise to creative work. And it's very interesting that, you know, in certain points in time, there were groups that got together to talk and that seemed to produce tremendous things. I mean, the Romantic Movement, for example, you know, the Lake Poets around William Wordsworth, for example, the Harlem Renaissance. These were groups of people that fed off of each other intellectually and creatively. On the other hand, um, I do make the point, and I think that's an interesting one, that sometimes too much talk can get in the way of creativity. And they often said about Dr. Johnson, the great 18th century talker who was considered one of the most erudite men in England at the time, that he never wrote as much as he should have because he was too busy talking. <laughs> and I have se- felt that about myself, that sometimes the idea gets depleted when you're talking with somebody. But there's, that's not such a bad thing. Right. You know, there's a little sidebar about, um, I guess it's the Harlem Renaissance Civic Dinner Club, that from a, occasionally they would have these um, I guess, evenings where they would tell the worst things they had ever heard about each other. <laughs> Gossip, right? Gossip, yes. And the Algonquin people were also they nasty. Yeah. yeah, what is it that, I think, maybe it wasn't Dorothy Parker, it might have been Mary McCarthy, it was part of the partisan review crowd who said, "Come if you have nothing nice to say about anyone, come sit next to me. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, how do you see gossip and conversation? How important is gossip to conversation, do you think? I think gossip is fun. I mean, there's been a, a book, a, a work of literary criticism about 20 or 30 years ago about gossip in the novel, that the novel form is itself a kind of a solidification of gossip. Oh. Um, and I, I think as human beings, we are very curious about each other. And so part of conversation may be talking about people who aren't there. I think it can get to be too much, and you can feel a little a little soiled by talking too much about other people. But I think it has its place, and it can be a lot of fun. I mean, Dave and I used to laugh about pe- other people um, and, and think about, you know, various idiosyncrasies attached to them and, and show how perceptive we were. Of course. Yeah. I mean, a great glue that, yes. that, that gossip is. Is there any evidence that um, Dr. Johnson or or people living hundreds of years ago were better conversationalists than we are? Hmm. Um, I think they were in that perhaps they had more time. The men, at least, had wives to take care of things. Um, They uh, maybe valued conversation more than we do now. They had clubs. I tend to think that one of the reasons the French are such good conversationalists is they had salons, as you mentioned, where men and women mixed together. The British, on the other hand, and many other societies, and even now, tend to segregate the sexes. And I think conversation is better when you have men and women. I think Mm. it's Jonathan Swift who said that women add romance to conversation. But, you know, I put that in quotes because I think what he could have said is that, you know, some degree of uh, flirtation even or t- adds texture to conversation. 
whether it's men and women or men, you know, even even same sex, there's this sense in which you're talking and you're flirting at the same time a bit. And women bring, as you write, and this is more in the past than the present, better food. <laughs> yes, although some of these men's clubs in Britain, well, I don't know if the food was very good, yeah. but it was, you know, they had it was mon- it was a wealthy environment. They probably had pretty good food. But yes, women tend to think the food is important. And uh, and then maybe the liquor, I don't know. You don't want to generalize. Yeah, and you can also generalize by, by whether what the ethnicity is, whether right. food or or drink is more important. Yeah, but both are both are useful. Well, let's take another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Paula Morantz-Cohen, our guest today on The Connection. And again, she's got a new book we are talking about called Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation. We're going to play a couple of clips, uh, one from His Girl Friday and Gilmore Girls after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and our guest is Paula Morantz-Cohen. Again, she's a professor at Drexel University, and we've been talking about her new book called Talking Cure. Well, let me do a wild segue from what we've been talking about and play a clip from His Girl Friday. This is, uh, uh, I believe, a 1940 film starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, often called a madcap comedy, known for its rapid-fire dialogue about a divorced couple. They're both journalists. They work together. And in this scene, she's telling him that she's leaving because she got a better offer. Oh, listen, Walter. You are no longer my husband and no longer my boss. And you're not going to be my boss. What's that supposed to mean? Just what I say. You mean you're not coming back to work on the paper? You are right, Mr. Burns, for the first time today. Uh, uh, got a better offer, you huh? You bet I've got a better All offer. All right, go on, take it, work for somebody else. That's the gratitude I get. Oh, I wish you'd What were you when you came here five years ago, a little college girl from a school of journalism? Oh. I took a doll-faced hick. Well, it wouldn't take me if I hadn't been doll-faced. Oh, why should I? I thought it'd be a novelty to have a face around here, a man could look at it without shuddering. Listen, Walter. Listen, I made a great reporter out of you, Hildy, but you won't be half as good on any other paper, and you know it. We're and a team, that's what we are. You need me, and I need you, and the paper needs both Americans. I wish I could talk that well and that fast. <laughs> Scripted. Scripted. That helps. Let me play another clip, and this is from Gilmore, the Gilmore Girls. And uh, Rory's mom, Lorelai, is conflicted about letting Rory spend time with her father over the holiday break. It's about 37 seconds. Let's give it a listen. And the thing that I really, really hate about this is, is the idea of you not hanging out with me because you're hanging out there with your stupid stepmother. You're calling Sherry my stepmother? Well, she practically is. You're wigging. You think I'm overreacting? I think you're jealous of Sherry. I'm not jealous of Sherry. But I understand. Your territory has been threatened. Excuse me? But relax. There are ways to work through situations like this. Compromises can be struck. Oh, well, what what are you saying? Well, you know, I can still call you mom, and I'll call her Mommy Sherry. Don't be mean. We can split up holidays evenly. Like, I'll be with you on Labor Day. Okay. Her on Memorial Day. Enough. I get the point. I overreacted. Please stop. 
Now you watch this with your with your children and um, this my was daughter, a, your yes, daughter, yes. yes. And you, I guess you play the mom and she plays <laughs> the daughter. But nonetheless, what do these two clips tell us? Well, first of all, I did say to my daughter, "Let's talk like the Gilmore Girls," which of course annoyed her enormously. She's an adolescent at the time, and and the point is, of course, and the same with the other clip, you can't talk like this in real life. These are scripted encounters; they're represent representations of talk. And one of the points I make in the book is that you can represent talk, but it's not going to be like what it feels like. Well, it will. you can try and represent what it feels like to be in talk, but it won't be real talk. Um, and since I am also a novelist and I write dialogue, I know how you have to doctor real dialogue hmm. in order to get across that feel of conversation. And um, so it, it's interesting that my dinner with Andre, um, uh, the um, the Gilmore Girls, and what was the clip? It wasn't the awful truth. It was uh, his girl Friday are are scripted. Yes. and so but they seem you know spontaneous. They seem quick and wonderful, and yet, you know, that's not real talk. But it gives you a feeling of something, of that encounter, of that engagement between the two people. Now, we're having an interview. Yes. Are we having a conversation? I think we are. I think because you're very good at it, um, it makes me feel like we are having a conversation. And yet, um, it's sort of scripted. I I have, as you can see, I have my... 36 questions here, and I'm moving papers around. So there is a scripted element to what's happening It would happening be interesting, here. Marty, if we did it without your be- having scripted. Yes. yes. But you would not do that because you're no, too well prepared. No, I would not prepared. do that. Well, yeah. in part, it's, it's different because hopefully it's for the listeners. I mean, that what, yes. what's happening here is something for people who are not with us to be able to listen to but and hopefully it, find interesting. But don't you think it would be interesting to try it? I mean, right. you wouldn't have to air it, um, but to try it without notes. Right. Just you, let's say you read the book and we're going to talk about these ideas and see what happens. You know, that's the nightmare <laughs> scenario <laughs> that I have, that yeah. I've been given an interview that I did not prepare for, and then I have to just go and do it on the air. And you probably would do it really well. I probably well. would yeah. do it okay. But yeah, yeah that, it's an absolutely terrifying thought. Hmm. You mentioned the pandemic, and you know it's it's hard to talk about anything without going back to the pandemic. Yeah. But its impact on conversation, frankly, and you know, three years ago, we were those of us that were lucky enough to be able to have our jobs and work at home. We were looking at those little Zoom squares on our on our screen so that we could talk to each other. Now, three years later, what do you think the impact has been on conversation? Um, I think for young people, it had a strong impact, and they have had to reacclimate, and some of them have a hard time engaging in person. There have been advantages, too, and I write about this in the book that I have a Shakespeare read-aloud group, and we started right at the beginning of the pandemic. We've been going now for three years. We meet every week. Um, at Wednesdays at four o'clock. I actually canceled this week um, for reasons of having it, but it's one of the very few times I cancel. And we we um, have about fourteen people on this read aloud where we read Shakespeare for a few lines and then we talk about what we've wow. read. And we have people from we have someone from England, we have someone from Indiana, we all over and all ages going from eighteen to eighty, and the conversation is splendid. Um, I think having that vehicle of Shakespeare to talk about is one thing. Having 
gone over time doing this and seeing each other's faces on the screen. It would be ideal if we could all meet in person and Mm -hmm. do this with food and drink, Mm -hmm. but it would be impossible. We wouldn't be able to do it. So there's an advantage. Well, and I do think social media does give us lots of choices. I mean, whether we choose them or not is another thing, but the fact that you could create this or just the fact that there was this need for it's not human contact, certainly human connection during the pandemic. When yes. So many people were forced home or separated or, you know, just sort of out of their regular routines. The problem with having choices now is that the online choices tends to be the easier choice. So if you give people and we have many events in the Honors College where I'm dean, where we try to make it an option to have it face to face or they could join online. Mm-hmm. And we found that too many people will join online who could maybe walk across the street and join us, but it's easier to just go on their computer. I don't think that's a good thing. You do teach at a university, and I, and I wonder about how, what it's like. How do you create difficult conversations? I mean, we've got a group of students. How do you help people feel that they can participate in something that might be difficult to hear or even to say? Well, I think it's more difficult now than it used to be. And I think because of various things, whether it's social media and COVID or and the political polarization in this country has created a situation where people are very wary of speaking freely. Um, So um, it's a shame because I think the university should be a place where there's free expression, but it's less so than it once was, in my opinion. But there are more ideas out there to be expressed. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's connected. I mean, that that universities are more diverse than they were 20, 30 more years ago. Exactly. And before uh, the university that I went to, there was one position, essentially, and Mm -hmm. that was the professor's position, and it tended to coincide with that of the white male, privileged male. And... um, there wasn't any opportunity or even thought to question that. But I wish we were somewhere somewhere other than feeling that there are positions that might offend and so you can't say them or things that are considered, um, you know, appropriate and, and you want to say that uh, because that does close down intellectual uh, curiosity and discourse. In fact, you write, when there is no tolerance for wrong or unpleasant, the result can be conformist and platitudinous. I used to, this is you, I used to routinely adopt the devil's advocate position in the classroom as a means of complicating what was being discussed, but I find it harder to do this now when dissenting viewpoints are less tolerated and when playful or ironic positions are taken literally. So you've had to censor yourself to some degree. Yeah, I think irony, which is, I, I love being sarcastic occasionally and ironic, those inflections may not be understood. Um, perhaps they weren't understood before either, but they were let 
pass, whereas now they could get you into trouble. They could be misunderstood. They could hurt someone's feelings. But I think understanding irony is part of the the sophistication of of learning. It's part of being educated is to know when someone is being ironic and when they're being serious and how uh, they're being nuanced in a discussion of something or trying to complicate. And if you can't complicate, I think you can't really uh, learn. How do we, we meaning we as a country, or perhaps this is a problem around the world, how do we get beyond that, though? I'm not sure. I think, again, by uh, persisting in conversation with people different from ourselves and trying to show that we have goodwill. I have found that when you show that you really are interested in what the other person is saying, they will be forgiving if you say something that's a little off. Um, And I guess taking a little bit of a risk and putting yourself out there, even if it could get you into or, you know, could get some create some problem because otherwise uh, you, you get caught into in your own bubble and and that's no fun and and, and it's not a way as a, as a teacher it's not a way to encourage not to a way to model learning for your students well I'm also thinking of, of book banning which is mm. you know a, a problem in so many school districts you wrote a book called of human kindness. Um, what Shakespeare teaches us about empathy, and I'm thinking it's of some Florida in particular, where they have they have sort of edited Romeo and Juliet to, I don't know, take out the bad parts. I'm not even <laughs> sure what that is. I yeah. think it's the sex parts, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, um, then you're taking out the empathy. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's funny, our Shakespeare group online is reading Romeo and Juliet right now, and we we had just the most wonderful discussion about Romeo and masculinity in discussing that. But, you know, it's funny, on um, on the right, politically, there's been this effort to say, well, we have to ban Romeo and Juliet. But on the left, there's also been a tendency to, I think, reduce Shakespeare to a certain kind of uh, colonialist, uh, patriarchal figure. And that's really not true. I mean, obviously, he was he was writing in a, and, and, and acting in a culture that was very different from our own and very with many problematic elements to it. But his plays have so much complicated hmm. material that critiques that and that makes him endure. Um, and when you read him closely, or I suppose watch a lot of performances, you see that you can't simplify him into that kind of ogre or monster. Well, I, and I was hearing that some parents who were critical of Romeo and Je- Juliet, you know, object to the fact that they, in a sense, defy their parents. And, you know, one must be obedient to one's parents. Right. And of course, there are plenty of real examples of children that defy their parents. And I think the way they're punished, which is to die at the end, <laughs> is a good lesson. I think the more problematic element in Romeo and Juliet is the suicide, but it's not a real suicide. They don't, mm-hmm. th- well, the fact that, yeah, that there is, that they kill they kill themselves, um, not intending initially to do so. But um, that is a problem because of the the number of uh, the self-harm that's happening among young people and so forth, that's a problematic element. I don't know if that's been uh, focused on in these cases, which is interesting. 
I was also thinking, and this goes back to actually President Clinton, who first raised it about having this a dialogue, you know, a conversation about race. Yeah. And Obama brought it up as well. Um, that seems to be a really almost impossible conversation to have. And again, it's if, if you don't have agreed upon history or you want to whitewash history, how do we talk about race? Again, I think it has to be with people who fe- who are very diverse and who feel safe enough to talk about where they're coming from. And so, you know, uh, um, that we're trying to do this at Drexel with, with a student um, st- groups talking about various difficult ideas with moderators to help them. Hmm. Um, we're going to tentatively call, call it a seat at the table, and they will talk, um, they will be given topics to talk about. And... Uh, but with the understanding that nobody is going to get upset and they're going to try and understand where the other person is coming Mm -hmm. from and encourage that person to speak their mind. Um, We had tried this under a, uh, uh, with a consultant under the title of Can We Talk Mm -hmm. this year, but we're hoping to continue it next year um, as well because we think it's really important for students to have this, to be encouraged, maybe in a formal and safe setting to talk about ideas about race, about immigration, about books and book banning, about religion, about abortion that are so difficult for their parents or or the community to talk about. Well, and what I hear you saying is that um, good conversation takes practice. Mm. Yes, and um, that's where I always get back to the college seminar. Unfortunately, I think there are fewer of these than there used to be, or mm. it depends on the school. But the idea of having a seminar where, especially if it's led by a good instructor who knows how to both lead and a face themselves in the conversation. This is where students are encouraged. Everyone's encouraged to participate, build on each other's ideas, to listen to each other. And usually when there's a text involved, whether it's um, a literary text or a a film or a an event, uh, you know, something that's being discussed, that becomes a, a transitional vehicle by which people can then expose themselves. And it's safer than just talking about these ideas directly. Um, And I do think that that's, we need to have more of those. And they need to be small classrooms around a table, the Harkness table, as it's called, where um, students can practice becoming good at conversation and bring that out into the world when they graduate. Well, I think it's something we all should do and can (laughs) do. And I always feel as if, and we're almost out of time here, is it's important to read the room too, as if as a talker to to, to look Absolutely. around you and get get feedback. Yes, and you can adjust your style of talk to the people that you're with. It's not like you have to be uh, brazenly the same all the time. On that note, Paula Morantz Cohen, thank you for joining us today on the Connection. Oh, thank you, Marty. I enjoyed it. Me too. And the book is called Talking Cure. Tina Calakay, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.